Hello everyone, my name is Andre and I'm here with Michael and welcome to Radically Normal. On today's episode titled Cornerstone, we will discuss uh, among many of the topics in chapter 12 of Mark, uh, the parable of the tenants, paying taxes to Caesar, as well as the great commandment. And we hope you guys enjoy this episode. There's a lot going on this week. We have several, several football games to tune into. And Andre, as you look at the NFL first, what do you see happening as the year unfolds? Are the Chiefs better than the Steelers? What's going on with the NFL or NFC East? What do you think? Dude, honestly, I think I could see the Chiefs winning it all again. Just, you know, Patrick Mahomes, two minutes to go in, in the fourth quarter. And, you know, I'd, I'd be really scared to be, be any defense facing that. But I think, you know, in terms of the Steelers and the Chiefs, I think that uh, the Steelers are really this year's 49ers, which is basically a, a team with a really good defense, a really good record, um, cruises in the playoffs, and then gets to the Chiefs and can't get it done late in the game. But I think that a bigger, uh, potentially uh, hot take, if you will, and I kind of want to stay away from the NFC East just because, you know, the Cowboys are near and dear to my heart. But <laughs> looking, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know. It's tough this year, but looking more at the AFC, um, I think that, you know, the Dolphins have a good chance of making the playoffs. And I think that potentially first team out is going to be the Ravens. I haven't seen uh, Lamar Jackson play too well. And despite being a, early season fan favorite team to win it all. I think that people might be surprised when, when the Dolphins make it in and the Ravens uh, do not. I'm interested to see if there's any tiebreakers there. I think they might end up with the same record potentially, but we'll see. We'll see. You know, the Dolphins have an interesting schedule. Tomorrow they play the Bengals, which should potentially be a layover, but then they play the Chiefs, the Patriots, the Raiders, and the Bills. A lot of teams in contention for the playoffs. Yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point that, you know, they have to play the Chiefs still, and, and that's definitely going to be definitely going to be a loss. Um, may, maybe not guaranteed loss, but I think that it's a good good chance that we can, like, chalk it up as a loss. And it's interesting to, you know, think about, you know, maybe maybe the Ravens um, going on a good winning streak here to, to close out the season. But, you know, I mean, do you have any uh, takes about um, looking into, you know, NFL playoffs or maybe college football as that wraps up as well? Well, definitely no more NFL takes. And just for the record on here, Andre is considerably more knowledgeable about the NFL. I'm not super in tune with it at all. But in terms of college football, it's very interesting what's unfolding because now with Notre Dame in the ACC for this for this year, uh, they'll meet Clemson in the ACC championship, which gives Florida or A&M a chance to potentially squeak in if Notre Dame loses. And my personal opinion is that even though Clemson's lost, they should still be ranked ahead of Notre Dame, even though they lost to them, because... My personal take is that if they had Trevor Lawrence, there's no way they lose that game. Oh, yeah. Double overtime to beat a Clemson team without their quarterback. I mean, I think that's ridiculous. But, I mean, I guess in terms of a take uh, with, you know, the ACC um, standings or rankings right now, I think it'd be interesting uh, to see what happens after the season's all said and done. You know, I think a lot of people hope that potentially Notre Dame you know, figures out what they're doing with their uh, team in terms of like, w- like what conference are they in? Are they going to stay in the ACC? Or are they going to go back to being independent? And I think that if they lose to Clemson in the ACC championship game, and then say A&M squeaks into the playoff, like you said, might happen. I think Notre Dame for sure leaves the ACC and continues to be independent because 
had they be, had they been independent this year and with that win against Clemson uh, not having to play against them again later on in the season I think that they easily would make it into the playoff and Clemson doesn't get that chance for redemption in, in you know the eyes of the committee yeah I really wish Notre Dame would stay in though because I feel like they're overrated each year due to their independent status however uh, and maybe I'm biased in terms of my own university, but I think that OU's playing at the level of top five or six uh, team football in the country, but due to our two early losses, we're still out of the top 10. Come on, man. OU does not deserve to be top four team. Let's, let's be honest. <laughs> I didn't say top four. I said top five or six. We handled Oklahoma State easily, who was ranked uh, in the top 10 at one point this season. And you could definitely make the case that we're at least as good as uh, Cincinnati, Florida, maybe A&M. And there were uh, predictions a few weeks ago that we play A&M in a bowl game, which I would love to see because although A&M is quite good this year, usually A&M's like a three to five loss team, but uh, Aggies are just like, oh, you know, we're in such a good conference. We'd be like a one loss team in any other conference. So I'd love to see OU play A&M uh, just to see the result. Hopefully you get a win there. Yeah, man. I mean, Florida and A&M have just been looking pretty good, pretty top notch. Um, as long as Cincinnati doesn't make the playoff, though, I'll be happy and we'll get a few <laughs> good football games to finish off the season. And, you know, we'll just move on with our lives. This is kind of a crazy year. And, I mean, who knows what happened if it, if it wasn't for, like, you know, shortened schedules and such. But, I mean, this was a really fun discussion about football. But moving more into what we're actually going to be talking about uh, for the majority of this episode, which is Mark Chapter 12, you know, you got any initial start, any initial thoughts to kick us off there? So the first verse is he began to speak to them in parables. So them is identified in chapter 11, verse 27, as the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders. And so this is really interesting, though, because we haven't talked about parables really since uh, chapter 4. So the fact that there's this huge, big parable, the only major parable in the entire gospel outside of chapter 4, is right here. We need to pay attention to why it's there. So what? So in chapter 11, Jesus cleanses the temple. He curses the fig tree. We see judgment pronounced on, on Israel uh, and on the temple. And then in chapter 13, which we're going to talk about next week, we're going to see a, a future tribulation. We're going to see uh, coming destruction and judgment. And so the fact that this is placed here right in the middle draws attention to our fact. It's not like an Oreo sandwich like we've been talking about because it's not, we're not returning back to a theme from, verse, or from chapter 11 when we get to 13. But it is at least worth noting that uh, there is uh, judgment in this story, and he's talking about uh, Jewish unfaithfulness, particularly that of the uh, Jewish authorities. Yeah, I mean, I, I just really like this parable because, you know, we see um, kind of this situation unfold where you have the owner of a, vine, of a vineyard, um, that being, you know, the father. Um, we see um, the son of that owner, you know, being Jesus, and then we see many other um, messengers and servants and, and, and that kind of thing who go um, and reach out. And, you know, a lot of them, you know, they get turned away or killed or anything. But I, I thought it was like interesting to think of, of you know, uh, who who these other uh, messengers and servants and, and that kind of thing, like who they represent. Um, you know, one of them, in my eyes, definitely being John the Baptist. But it's interesting to think of like who these, you know, who these other characters actually represent. That's really interesting. I hadn't even thought of John the Baptist, and a, a commentary I was reading did not mention uh, who they thought these servants were. I thought uh, particularly also of the prophets. You think of, I think in Matthew 23, his seven woes, and he says, you've killed the prophets of God, and you're going to do the same 
to me. That's essentially what he says. And so I thought that the prophets uh, that were godly that were killed could have also been uh, in the case here. And so just real quick, though, for because uh, I tend to listen to podcasts while driving, mowing the lawn, uh, walking, etc. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, just as a quick reminder, in the parable of the tenants, uh, basically a man who is uh, portrayed as God here owns a vineyard, and uh, then he leases it to tenants, and so he sends servants to check in on these tenants basically every so often to get some of the fruit, and they take these servants, and they the tenants uh, either kill or they beat the servants, and then and then God, the owner, sends his son saying, surely they're not going to kill my beloved son. And then so in verse 6, the beloved son reference goes back to chapter 1, chapter 9, baptism and transfiguration. Jesus is the beloved son of God. And then they they kill the son. And so that's just a quick summary of what's going on here in case you don't have the text in front of you. Yeah, man, that's a really good summary. I didn't even think to, you know, introduce it better before. I jumped right into some questions I, I had about it. But I mean, I, I like going back to, um, you know, the parable itself, I, I think it's like so interesting how um, this is really like speaking to, um, you know, kind of like, like, as you said, like directly to um, the Pharisees and, and many of like Jewish customs and, and how um, specifically, you know, they're acting uh, towards Christ. And, and, you know, we see that, um the owner of the vineyard, you know, thinks surely if I send my son, they won't kill him. And, and, um, they won't have this like arrogance that, you know, this is just, they're doing, uh, you know, in this case, like the vineyard itself, um, obviously they're the ones who were taking care of it and such, but, you know, obviously they don't, they don't have ownership over it, but, you know, they still kill the son regardless and think that that's going to be their solution is just to kill the son. Um, besides like accepting actually what, you know, what, the, what the truth is. Yeah, it's fascinating too at the end of the at the end of the parable how Mark attaches on uh, going with the parable where Jesus is speaking and says, "Have you not read this?" and and uh, quotes Psalm one eighteen twenty two through twenty three. And so, actually, lots of other New Testament uh, passages use this to describe the rejection of Jesus. And so, that's in Luke twenty, Acts four, Romans nine, First Peter two. And so, what's interesting though is verse eleven, uh, quoting the Psalm says that this was the Lord's doing, it's marvelous. So what's interesting is that God, the rejection, the killing of God's son, Jesus Christ, is going to be used for his glory. Jesus is the crucified king who honors and glorifies God in his death and in his resurrection. So that the the tacking on of the Psalm 118, Jesus is giving hope and he's echoing the, the story of the resurrection. And so that is basically portraying that, yes, they're killing the son and this is going to be used for God's glory. And I also think it's recalling, and we've been talking about Ezekiel, we've been talking about Jeremiah, we've also been talking about Isaiah, three of the major prophets. In Isaiah 5, there's a vineyard of the Lord. This is a clear echo of that. In that chapter, God loves the vineyard, but it doesn't produce fruit. And so that's about the entirety of Israel. But here in Mark, the vineyard's not the problem. It's the tenants who own the vineyard. So Jesus is directly calling out the owners, or not the owners, but the uh, tenants who are the Jewish authorities, as I said previously. Yeah, for sure, man. And, you know, I think, you know, as you said, that um, call there in the middle, um, you know, specifically, you know, as, as the title that we decided for the episode, um, speaking uh, to Christ as being the cornerstone, you know, we really get to see how in, in calling them out, he's also saying that, you know, he is the only way um, to be saved. And he's saying like, he, like he's calling, you know, them out for basically saying like, you've rejected, ignored, um, you're going to do as much as kill me, but, you know, I'm the only way that you can be saved. And, you know, we see even that 
um, like the religious leaders and, and many of the people who were there, they feared because, you know, they understood all of a sudden that um, he was potentially speaking like about them. Uh, whereas like many times in other parables, uh, we see that, you know, people were confused and didn't really get the point. But here they really did get the point because they could tell, man, he's really talking about us. Yeah, just real quick, I think it's interesting to think about Old Testament imagery about uh, beloved sons or children who are treated a certain way by their superiors. And I want to go to Genesis. So in Genesis 22, the beloved son Isaac is put up on uh, the altar to be sacrificed before God says, hang on, no, let me provide an alternate sacrifice, which is basically foreshadowing that God would provide a substitution for us. However, it's also echoing Joseph's story. Because in Genesis 37, Joseph is thrown into the pit by his brothers, his superiors. And then but he goes from the pit to being powerful in uh, Egypt. He goes from prisoner to prince. And so that's a resurrection theme, in a sense. And so this is also echoing the idea of the resurrection of Joseph's life. Yeah, man, that's that's really good. And, I mean, it's, it's interesting. And, uh, you know, I'd be interested to get, you know, some of your thoughts on that. But... Um, you know, many times when we see uh, a call back to, you know, many Old Testament things, you know, it's, it's really pointing um, specifically, you know, to, you know, that being resolved specifically, you know, through the cross many times. And it's interesting to think about, um, you know, potentially like what our thoughts should be um, today and also what these people were thinking, you know, so near uh, to the actual, you know, time when, when, you know, Jesus would actually be crucified and, and and like he says here, like, you know, being the cornerstone um, to our salvation. And, and we're going to see uh, eventually in the coming weeks where he actually is crucified, but then actually rises again. And thinking about, you know, how um, potentially, you know, these religious leaders and such thought um, and how they were, you know, what their thoughts were and sentiments were towards this, you know, now and then compared to afterwards when they see this all unfold. Yeah, and so the, the the Pharisees, so right here we have the questioning from the chief priests, the scribes. That's one major group, the scribes of the Sanhedrin, like the, in a sense, the supreme court of the Jewish temple. And then so now we, so we have a second group, the Pharisees. So they come to trap him uh, in his talk. So do you want to read maybe a couple verses of uh, this this next section on render to Caesar? And then we'll kind of jump into it. So basically what's going on here is they're trying to trap him, as you said. Um, in terms of, you know, taxation. And, and we see specifically, you know, he calls out um, their hypocrisy. And, and in verse 15, he says, knowing their, their hypocrisy, um, when they had asked them if it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, which we see in the verse before, um, and continuing on verse 15, um, you know, he says, why put me to the test? Bring me a, a Daenerys and let me look at it. Um, and after they bring him one, um, in looking in verse 17, we see Jesus tell them, renders to Caesar the things uh, that are Caesar's and to God the, thing, the things that are God's. Um, and we see that they marveled at this. And it was you know, very interesting thinking back to one of the teachings at Passion, you know, um, where they said, you know, the next logical question would have been, uh, you know, what face is on like you and I as, um, you know, children of God and, and obviously made in God's image, we should give our lives um, to God. I mean, that's really fascinating. I actually don't remember uh, hearing that, but it's interesting. That's an interesting comparison. Huh? Caesar's image on the coin, God's image on us. So it's interesting uh, how they're trying to trap him. So the two responses that they think Jesus will give is either A, 
you can pay your tax. You should pay your taxes. If he just says that, he's a traitor to the Jewish cause. He's not a patriot. The second thing he could say is don't pay. But if he if they, he says don't pay your taxes, then he ends up a revolutionary. He ends up in trouble with Caesar, in trouble with Rome. And you can picture today if you were starting some, like even if you were starting a religious movement in the United States, and you said, you know, don't pay your taxes. Well, you wouldn't uh, go hand in hand or be cooperating very well with the IRS, and you uh, wouldn't be very—you wouldn't be looked well upon. And so you can imagine how these two things uh, would put him at odds with uh, two different parties. There's political expediency on both sides of the answer, but he kind of cuts through the middle of that. And you know, much like Jesus tends to do one question when they're trying to trap him, he—you know—he cuts through, um, you know, what the trap is and gets to the actually. The actual meat and potatoes of, of you know what the question is and gets like directly to the heart of the people who are asking the question right i i love john piper's quote on this he says when you realize that all of life including all of caesar's rights and power and possessions belong to god then you'll be in a proper frame of mind to render to caesar what is caesar's and so part of that is that we have to remember that our primary identity on earth isn't in uh, you know, being a Texan or an American, but it's to be a Christian exile, as we learn in Philippians 3, 1 Peter 1 and 2. And so when when we recognize that, we have to realize that every power that's given to Caesar in this case or into uh, the United States is given by God. This is what Jesus says to Pilate uh, when Pilate is questioning him. You've been given your authority by God. The state, and this goes back to the uh, the fundamental Baptist idea of uh, religious liberty, which is that the state's not given rights by scripture to determine what's ultimate. All things are God, and the state is limited in what it can exercise. And so when you render to God what is God's, all things are God's, then you can properly uh, give what is due right to Caesar or to your government today. Yeah, and then obviously a, a clear theme here is that just because, you know, there's something that, you know, we don't want to do, we should still, you know, adhere to the, the laws of, like, you know, the land that in which we live. Um and there's like an obvious, you know, you know, overtone of that as well, that you should, you know, follow the law and, and do as it says, um, you know, obviously, like, unless if it's deterring you or, you know, stopping you from um, worshiping or following Jesus. Right. There's kind of that tension between Romans 13 to uh, be submitted to the civil authorities and to the government implemented by God. And at the same time, the Acts 4 and 5 picture of they are disobeying the government so that they can share the gospel. And so it's if the government is implementing limits or restrictions on life that do not uh, go against the scripture, then we're to obey those things. But we obey God ultimately. Yeah, I mean, and obviously, you know, they're not they're not really asking this question in terms of like, oh, we need to use this money for. Um, you know, upkeep of the temple or something, it, it's clear that they just, you know, want to trap them and, and potentially just don't want to pay taxes. So um, it's really interesting. But if you don't have anything else about that section, um, you know, moving on to some of the next few sections, um, I think um, these are a little bit shorter, but, you know, there's so much good stuff that we can get out of all of these. So I want to make sure that, you know, we get to touch on, on all of them and at least speak uh to all of them and what they have, what they have to, what they have to say for us. Yeah, man, I'm down for that. So the first one are the Sadducees asking about the resurrection, starting in uh, Mark 12:18. The Sadducees. It's worth noting, although they are working in conjunction with the Pharisees, just like in Jewish life, they actually have very different beliefs. The Pharisees believe more in a sovereign God. I believe the Sadducees more in a uh, 
and a libertarian free will sort of thing. The Sadducees, most significantly for the conversation here, though, don't believe in a resurrection or an afterlife, which kind of frames up why they ask this question to begin with. And here, just for a little background, um, you know, the root of the question or, or trap that they're trying to uh, present to Jesus here, the Sadducees, you know, as you said, um, is specifically about, you know, um, after we die and then, you know, they're asking the question of like, what happens in terms of who we're married to? And they say, they give a scenario of, you know, well, if I was married to someone and the Jewish law says that if uh, the husband dies and the wife has no um, offspring, then his brother is to marry that woman. And they kind of give this like whole scenario where there's seven brothers and they all die and then they all end up marrying the same woman. And then they're like, well, what's going to happen? Like, which one of them is going to be married to her um, after, you know, death in heaven? And they're just trying to trap Jesus here again. And, and he gives an answer that's, you know, very uh, specific and, and very, you know, to the point of, of, you know, getting to the heart of their question here as well. So his response, as Andre just alluded to in verse 24, is Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And so like today we're like, oh yeah, they don't know this, ha ha. But if you're back in that time, the Sadducees being temple authorities, this was like telling LeBron that he doesn't know basketball. Or telling Patrick Mahomes he doesn't know how to play quarterback. Like this is this is right up the alley of like this is what they're an expert in, and yet they don't understand. And so Many Jews at the time, uh, at in the first century, thought that a resurrected in a resurrected state you were married. So that's kind of the context for this. But he kind of he says in in response, in in eternity there is no marriage. So instead of him, you know, ending up in some dispute, well, if marriage continues on, then then she he actually is or she's now bound to the first brother. He doesn't even end up in that debate. Kind of similar to the last one, but he points to a truth that's deeper than that, which is in eternity there there is not marriage. There's a greater prize. There's something better to focus on you're married you're in the uh you're in the courtship or you're in you're with the bride uh as the church you're the bride of christ so there's something better there yeah i think that's i think it's also really telling that you know how he gets like directly to the point here and you know like you 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 um actually you know read his specific answer but you know it's it's super telling about you know like you said how um, in heaven, you know, we'll be, the church will be the bride of Christ and how, you know, they're, they're worried about like the semantics of, I guess, if we're going to, who's going to marry who and, and kind of like some of those, you know, worldly, um, you know, desires and, and, and pleasures of, of the human heart, you know, here on earth. And, you know, Jesus is calling them to look far beyond that and, um, you know, get to the actual um, important things um, about, you know, being in in like the post, you know, the the, the post uh, revelation state where we have you know new heaven and new earth, and you know what truly is important, and um, what we should truly you know be focused and expecting of that time. I want to read something real quick from C.S. Lewis, and so it's for some people it might be hard to picture why there would not be marriage or sex in heaven when that could that's on earth, the greatest pleasure that God designed man and woman for. And so C.S. Lewis says, The letter and spirit of Scripture and of all Christianity forbid us to suppose that life in the new creation will be a sexual life. This reduces our imagination to the withering alternatives, either of bodies which are hardly recognizable as human bodies at all, or, el or else of a perpetual fast. 
And then he says, our, our present outlook might be like that of a small boy on being told that the sexual act is the highest pleasure should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. And then on receiving the answer, no, he might consider that the absence of chocolates is like the chief characteristic of sexuality. But you would tell him that the reason why they don't bother about chocolates is there's something better to think of. But the boy only knows chocolate, so he, and he doesn't know anything more positive than that. And so in our limited scope, we can't imagine anything better than like a married sort of life. But C.S. Lewis is pointing us to something greater, which I think is incredible. That's that's really good, man. You know, couldn't you know? I don't think we could have described this you know ridiculous question that's asked of Jesus any better than what we just read there. Um, but, you know, I think that's a, a good way to, you know, just go ahead and move on to us talking about the great commandment and potentially, you know, one of the, um, more well-known, uh, sections of this chapter, but, you know, um, I think, you know, there's some really great stuff we can pull from here and there's, you know, there's a reason why, um, you know, everyone really knows this section, you know, compared to a lot of other parts of Mark, you know, this one's one that's quoted, you know, very often. Do you care if I touch up on something from the last section? Oh, no, no, go for it, go for it. So the only reason that we're, I'm going back is because this can be a, a pretty confusing verse if you're if you're not really thinking it through. So in verses 26 and 27, Jesus says, like, have you not read Moses and how God spoke to him? I am the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. So remember that this is quoted from Exodus 3. So this is after that those three are supposedly dead. But Jesus is saying, God's the God of the living. So Jesus is trying to tell them, hey, there is an afterlife. But he's saying, if God called himself the God of Abraham in Exodus 3, and God's not the God of the dead, then that means that there is an afterlife because Abraham, A, is in the afterlife at that point, and B, will be resurrected one one day. So just wanted to explain that real quick, but yeah, now let's jump into the Great Commandment. Sweet, man. You know, it's really interesting. Uh, Jesus' specific call to us to love our neighbors, um, especially when, when asked what, what the most important commandment is. I think that uh, these people were, you know, wondering which of the Ten Commandments um, he would say. And Jesus points to them that if you live your life loving God and loving others, then you know, you'll naturally be following um, all the other commandments already. And it, it, the most important is to, is to love. As Jesus loves us through his, um, you know, dying on the cross for our sins um, and being that ultimate sacrifice for us, um, you know, he shows his love and for us and we should show our love for others. Man, that's so good. It's interesting that he pairs together Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 to talk about the great commandment, the most important and the second. And so then he says that there's no commandment greater than these. And what's interesting, though, is today we, well, two things. First is that it's interesting, well, it's important to recognize that since love of God is uh, quoted first here, that's a prerequisite to loving neighbor. One cannot love neighbor properly or ultimately without loving God. And then the second the second uh, thing to pay attention to is now today we're like, all right, we have to love the Lord our God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does that mean for heart? What does that mean for soul? What does that mean for mind? What does it mean for strength? What that leads to today is then we end up like trying to apply each little section and then we end up picking the ones that are easiest for us. Maybe it's easier for your mind or maybe it's easier for your heart. But in a in this kind of Greco-Roman culture, it was actually just a reference to love God with everything you have. It's not supposed to be like specifically like, okay, how do I love God with my mind? Now let's transition and look at strength. It's just love God with everything that you have. Follow him just as Jesus told you to. And I think it's, you know, like, you know, you've, you've been talking uh, more so about the, you know, you need to love God with everything that you are. And I think a lot of times people focus more on the 
loving your neighbors. But I think that it's important to um, point out that, you know, the first thing that he says is, is to love God. And this is like the first commandment that we've seen, you know, throughout um, all of the scriptures, like starting all the way from Genesis where Adam and Eve are actually, you know, they're commanded to um, love the Lord um, who created them. And we see that, you know, it's, this is, you know, the most important thing is to um, live a life where we love God and, and, and glorify him. And I think it's important to, you know, realize the order here um, and to point out um, the significance that, you know, first and foremost, you know, we are to love God with everything that we have. And then if we can't do that, um, then the second thing um, will, will become much harder. I mean, I totally agree. What's interesting is the last two sections were basically they were trying to trap him or it was kind of a, a negative opinion about something. So we had the tenants, then we had uh, then we had paying taxes to Caesar with the Pharisees, then they tried to trap him with that. Then the Sadducee, Sadducees tried to trap him or ask him a difficult question about resurrection and marriage. And then but this man who comes to him is actually like pretty pretty kind. And so he says, you're right. He gives a good response. He says, you know, we need to love God. We need to love our neighbor. That's more important than sacrificing sacrifices and burnt offerings kind of uh, echoes the, what the prophets have to say in certain parts. And so Jesus said that he saw, sees it. He answers wisely and says, you're not far off from the kingdom. And that kind of sounds like a bad response, like not far off. Like, what does that mean? But the point here is that it's Jesus's authority to judge and to determine uh and to and Jesus is the one that's going to be doing the final judgment. And then also just that to be near to the kingdom of God, to not be far off is to be near to Jesus. To be near to the kingdom is to be near to Jesus. That's why in Mark chapter 1, we started with the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And so Jesus is saying the kingdom is in your midst. I'm here and I'm near. Yeah, and after, you know, three questions, um we you know, we finally see that, you know, before they we saw that they were, they feared um, now we see, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. And I think, you know, that's, you know, that's great there. You know, he, he didn't stumble over any of these three questions, three difficult questions. He, um, maybe the second one, a little bit ridiculous, but the other two, you know, right to the point, <laughs> explained uh, specifically, got to the heart of the matter and, you know, gave, gave answers that were life-giving. And um, at least this man here, as you said, you know, he actually got the point and Jesus, he got to, actually hear Jesus say that he was close uh, um, to the kingdom of the Father. And so the point, like we've been saying, to be close to the Father, to be near to the kingdom is to be near to Jesus, who's the Messiah. And so in the next section, he's teaching in the temple. So he's in the place of authority for the Jews. And then he asks the experts a question. He says, how can the scribes say that people with expert expertise in the scripture, he's questioning them in their own place of authority. How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? And so he quotes Psalm 110.1. This might just seem like a random psalm, but it's the most quoted Old Testament verse in the entire New Testament. It's uh, it's also in Acts chapter 2, just as one um, other example. And so then he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, highlights the inspiration of Scripture in David's uh, speech and David's writing. And so he's just basically saying the son of David is inadequate to explain who the Messiah is because the Messiah is not just a descendant. He's also the son of God, and we need to know both. Yeah, man, and I think that... Um, also, um, here, you know, looking, uh, looking ahead, um, you know, he's, he's really calling to the fact that, um, not only is he, you know, the son of David, but he's also, you know, King and Lord over David. And, you know, he's, he's really challenging what uh, the religious leaders were, were telling people during this time. 
and you know he's you know he wants to you know make sure that like through his teaching he's explaining like you know the truth behind who he is yeah that's so good and so he's trying to explain who he is he's trying to uh so remember at the beginning we only saw a lowly jesus at the transfiguration we saw a very high Christological uh, depiction or revelation of who God is in Jesus, the Son. And so now we're seeing a little bit more of that. Jesus is not just the the lowly son of David, the eternal Davidic king. He's also the Son of God, not just a descendant. He's also the messianic Son of God, the suffering servant of Isaiah, who leads the new, the new Exodus. And so then he just tells them to, then in his teaching, he uh, basically warns them about the scribes. Yeah, I think that these two sections go, they're both short and they go really well together because I think that, you know, in his teaching about, you know, you know, they say, you know, he's questioning why, why the religious leaders um, say these things about him, um, you know, whether he is, you know, the son of David or Lord over David. And, you know, he is clarifying this misconception and then, you know, through this warning them that, you know, they should be wary of many of the things that on the scribes, you know, the Pharisees, um, you know, religious leaders are teaching because he's saying, he's basically saying like, you know, they think they know everything about who I am and, and what I'm here to do, but you know, they don't listen to me for what I say of like who I am and don't listen to those people who call themselves religious leaders and are, are leading you astray and, and through his teaching. The one thing that's interesting in his, uh, his woe about the scribes, you could say, or woe to the scribes or just his warning about them is that there's nothing there about affections or motivations. He doesn't say, so they are doing all these things externally, but there's no proper affection there. There's no proper motivation there. And that's what Jesus does when people are following him. He reorients our affections so that we delight in him. Yeah, I mean, that's really good. And then, you know, he says that, you know, that they will, you know, devour widows. And then the next, the last section, um, we actually see, you know, a great story that, you know, I've at least, you know, seen teachings from, you know, plenty of times about um, the widow's offering where she just gives two two little copper coins. Um, but Jesus says, you know, she's giving way more um, than all of you, you know, people who, who have an abundance of wealth because she's giving basically all that she has, whereas everyone else is, is besides giving, um, aside from the fact that they're giving, you know, much more in terms of you know how much money they're giving but it is you know out of their abundance and it's not you know truly giving you know from their heart um as the widow is who's giving like everything that she has we give everything to god so if even if that doesn't all look like tithing or that doesn't all look like a investment in the in the local church that you belong to all our resources are god's and should be utilized to that end so i think jesus's point here too or the point of the story is like what does it cost you if it costs you nothing to give then are are you are you giving god wants us to be a living sacrifice to him and it's also shaping our intuitions about how the kingdom of god works the kingdom of god doesn't work on the and although it helps and we're certainly grateful when these things come in. The kingdom of God doesn't primarily move on the account of, you know, millions of dollars of giving. It primarily moves on faithful people who give their lives as a sacrifice to him and do likewise with their money. And, you know, I think this is also like calling us to, you know, think, you know, really consider how we are stewards over money, but also, you know, our our talents or gifts, as we've seen um, throughout, you know, other chapters as well as, you know, putting God first, you know, loving God, 
um, and many of the themes that we've seen in this chapter as well as many others before it. Um, but if you have nothing else, Michael, I just want to say thank you to everyone for uh, listening into this somewhat longer episode. But you know, there was a lot of good stuff throughout all these um, shorter parables and teachings of, of Jesus that we wanted to touch on and be sure to share uh, with you guys. Um, and hope you guys all enjoyed this episode and, and learn from something from it.